0: Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by GORUCK Media. Our guest today on episode nine is Dr. Rajiv Ramshand. He holds a PhD in psychiatric epidemiology from Johns Hopkins. And then he went on to the Rand Corporation where he won a presidential award, their highest honor, for work on military and veteran caregivers. He's testified before Congress twice, served at the Cohen Veterans Network, and he's currently a fellow at the Bob Woodruff Foundation. His most recent work is Veterans in COVID-19, projecting the economic, social, and mental health needs of America's veterans. Bottom line, it's a huge resume in the space of epidemiology. Emily and I have been fortunate to know Rajiv for almost 20 years, and what recently caught our eye, in this the midst of COVID-19, is that he's taken a YouTube to explain the basics of epidemiology defined as the study of the distribution, determinants, and control of disease. It's a difficult topic to understand if you're new to it, like me, but even a basic understanding can go a long way to making sense of what's going on these days, and Dr. Ramshan is just the guy to teach us. Dr. Ramshan, thanks
1: for joining us on the show today. Hey, Emily. Hey, Jason. Thank you so much for inviting me here.
2: Hi there. Good to see you again.
1: I know, it's been a while.
2: It has, I know, <laughs> 20 years.
0: <laughs> so I, I graduated your course, your basic epi course, you <laughs> called it, your nine-part YouTube series. And you said at the end, you said, hey, reach out to me if I can help in, in any way. And so that's really the spirit that defines this show is we take experts in their field who wanna serve something greater than themselves. And that's very much the sense I got and, and I've always gotten from you in in a lot of your, your professional career. So here we are, let's talk about what is epidemiology.
1: So epidemiology is quite basically the study of the distribution of diseases in society. So how many people get sick, why they get sick, and how they get better, quite frankly. And, and that's what it all boils down to. It's very statistical. It's it's based in statistics, but it has a biological, or in my case, because I study mental health primarily, a psychological underpinning. You have to have a notion of how diseases spread, how diseases evolve, how diseases... Um, the the biological course of a disease in order to understand some of these things and apply your mathematical or statistical models to the study of of diseases in society.
0: So COVID-19 it's going on right now.
1: I know. So and I have to tell you I defended my dissertation in 2006. So it's been it's been quite a while and I've been studying things like Suicide prevention, and as you said, caregivers, and depression, and post traumatic stress disorder. And all of a sudden, COVID came about. And I had to kind of reach back into my toolbox to think through all the infectious disease kind of concepts of epidemiology and just reacquaint myself with those constructs um, because we don't see them often when we talk about mental health disorders. We're really kind of focused on the more psychological, the psychological processes that bring about these conditions versus the immunological ones, so.
0: What you're saying though, is you have kind of a, a bird's eye view, but with this background in epidemiology, where, you know, the language makes sense to you, but you're not working on solving the cure, right? right now. I'm not
1: work- I'm not working on solving the cure. What I am doing, I think what my lens provides is an opportunity to look at the news and ask the pertinent questions and not just trust what people are telling me and to say, what do you mean like what what is the denominator there you know you've told me so many people are dying but i want to know what percentage of those people are die are dying relative to how many have gotten infected i want to know how many people are hospitalized relative to who are getting infected so if you tell me two counts if you tell me alaska has this many deaths and california has this many well i want to know the rate of death because that's how I can make good comparisons between the two to see if there's anything unique happening in California relative to Alaska. It's a very simple concept, and you can just take that a step further, a step further for each of the questions. So I'm just reading every piece of news with that critical lens of saying, where does this data come from? And do I trust it?
0: So let's start with relevant news. Then let's start with Wuhan. Yeah. When did you, when did you realize this was going to be a big thing?
1: It was definitely in the fall, I started hearing of things, or kind of towards the winter, I guess, November, December, and a neighbor of mine is a physician who does public health work. And I said, what do you think of this China? Like, what's going on in China? And he said, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Don't, you know, worry about it, kind of thing. And as time went on, and that was kind of the impression that we had. And to be honest, and February. I went to San Francisco, and everyone was talking about it. But there was a pinch of uncertainty, knowing that it was a big deal, but not fully appreciating it would be so such a big deal, such a disruption. I guess you will, you'll say. I guess you could say. And I think that that just goes that even though you know I'm there, I'm looking at the data, I'm tracking it, I'm following it. We had never seen something like this before. This, was, this is not SARS. We had never seen the extent to which the economy is being shut down to control this virus. And so it was even hard for me to conceive of this.
2: Wow. That's, I mean, that just goes to show the, how quickly it evolved and how, I mean, we were on a flight um, to Europe in mid-January. And on the flight, they were playing the movie Contagion. And I had been following it since, you know, late December, keeping an eye on it. I had actually brought a little, you know, simple face mask on the plane. Um, and I, Jason, I said to him, I was like, we should watch this. And it, of course, it freaked us out <laughs> from there. But I mean, the fact that they put it on the, the selection was somebody was already tracking this, you know, it was already trending. It was already trending. I mean, it was, it was surprising to me looking back in retrospect. Um, that was, that was, you know, mid January and things were already starting, like you said, to pick out, but we, we kept traveling, you know, people were going on with their daily lives because it didn't really have an impact yet. But, you know, so, so when is it when you were like, oh, wow, this is really accelerating.
1: Um, I think for me actually, it was when Johns Hopkins came out with like that website with um mm-hmm. with the, the mapping yeah. of things and showing the cases and showing how the distribution and then people said, Oh my gosh, look at you know, what we know about international travel. I mean, we are in a different society now than any other pandemic. Um, and I think as we were thinking about how infectious this was, how many people were getting infected, it was just a matter of time before it came here. And, you know, I just say it just, all of a sudden everything just compounded and just, it, it was almost overnight to being this thing that I was, you know, living my life just focused on 24 seven.
2: Right. I, yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. <laughs> and, but you so you mentioned the John Topkins kind of sick map, you know, or yeah. and it's really it's a really cool tool, I think, because it goes down to like the county level and it can get really specific um, um, for folks. Um, but what other sort of news sources are you? Are you using to keep yourself informed and, and sometimes, you know, gathering pieces of information and, and marrying it up with other, like what you know already and searching for that, that missing denominator, like you said, or that missing piece. Yeah. Right. yeah.
1: So I think that the, I'm using, I think that a lot of what I'm relying on now comes from the COVID tracking project. I think it has a lot of similar data to the, what Johns Hopkins map map does. It's just, To me, at least, it's not as overwhelming. I'll go to both data sources, but COVID Tracking Project is a really great one um, that I've been using. Uh, I think a lot of the commentary in 538.com has been really helpful and insightful. So I've been using their website a lot to look at things. Um, They have a great, and and really just in digestible formats, they have a great comic strip that they just published about forecasting models um, that is really accessible. And I think it's a really great Uh, It's a long comic strip, but it's a way to think through all these people who are putting out projections about, you know, when COVID will end or the magnitude of death that we'll experience and things of that nature. I'm also kind of a real like believer in Vox. And when they have kind of those, you know, the global, the pandemic recession in 10 slides and things like that. I also think that that's really well-informed and a lot of good information. So Hopkins, the COVID tracking project. Um, and then I go to the CDC a lot. And that was a lot for my background information. Just, and that's really just to understand what the federal response looks like. So those are, I think those are the sites that I'm most, and since I live in DC, I go to the Washington Post all that every morning. But those are the sites that um, I've, found to be really helpful during this time.
2: Right. I was going to, I'm glad you mentioned that you're in DC because, you know, it's, it's not New York, but you are where, you know, a lot of these organizations are Johns Hopkins and, you know, all these, you know, institutions that are um, making decisions um, nearby. And, and so you're, you are kind of at the the other epicenter, you know, that's making these policies, um, for it. So I, what I was thinking about and what's interesting, I think to a lot of people, I mean, if you just, you know, go on the history.com and all these places, it's like, well, tell me about other times when there's been pandemics in history and history. And you already mentioned like, we, this is like, we've never seen before because we have, you know, people going to China, you know, for a day and, you know, people getting a lot more mobile than they used to. And, um, borders are more fluid. So, you know, just kind of, we went back and just thought about like, what are some of the the major times in history where there's been something similar? And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the bubonic plague and, you know, how that was, you know, so severe, you know, and he's upward from like 200 million deaths. And it, London just kept getting this again and again and again, you know, like every 20 years they had, something like 40 outbreaks within, you know, a 30 year, a 300 year span. Right. Tell me, tell me about like that and some other data points that maybe someone from your background, do you guys look at that too? Or is that just like, you know, fluff for the rest of us?
1: So there's a really great website that shows the history of pandemics over time and it show there look like little microbes and they show it's this timeline. It's a very cool image. So because i because I did want to see where things were. It's interesting. I have to say that thinking about historically and pandemics and epidemics, I think that what distinguishes this one in a very optimistic way is that covid nineteen is from the family of the coronavirus. And we actually know a ton about the coronavirus. The common cold is a version of the coronavirus, which we
0: have not yet cured
1: by the way. We have not yet cured, but we know a lot of like what it looks like. It's on, And the second point related to that is we also have vaccines. So we know what it looks like. So I would just say compare that to like older plagues where there was no vaccine in sight. So nobody had that optimistic, you know, optimism that we could actually say, we think with some confidence we'll have a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. And from a sense that we know something about that, that compares to me to HIV AIDS. When HIV AIDS first came out, we didn't know. Like we knew nothing about that virus, right? It was uh, almost like starting from scratch. And I have to say, you know, as you know, I was born in 77 as like an openly gay man. Like I've had this threat of virus. It was funny cause I, as I've been reflecting about life and you know, my, and how this is impacting me, I've kind of always lived my life with this huge, you know, my enemy is the, is a, has been a virus since I was born essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. I've always been worried about this invisible enemy, um, more so than any kind of political, maybe that's wrong, but that's just my own experience. That's my kind of truth, if you will. So this kind of falls in line with that. And, um, but, but again, compared to something like HIV AIDS, we just know so much more biologically, virologically about COVID-19 than we did about something like that. So we're at, we have a huge leg up in thinking about prevention and control. We didn't even know how it was spread. HIV was spread, right? We didn't know if it was droplets. We had nurses and doctors who wouldn't touch, you know, patients with HIV or Carposis sarcoma. It was a totally different scenario. Now, you know, we are so, we have so much more information that, at least we can think about the spread of the disease and how to control it.
0: I mean, one more historical context is is malaria. You know, in, in Panama, when we were building the Panama Canal, they thought it was spread by by jungle vapors, mm-hmm. right? It, it took forever to figure out that it was mosquitoes, right? You know, so th- that is encouraging to say that we already know a lot about this strand, even though we haven't we haven't solved for the common cold. But you can go by five hundred dollars worth of stuff to treat the symptoms i mean that's that's kind of disturbing right
1: yeah (laughs) i mean it is we don't have the cure for it but we have like you know we have some ways to control it we know how it spreads at the very least right the common cold like we know how covid spreads we know um social distancing is one thing we can do to prevent the spread we know washing your hands things like that um I mean, it's not great, because there's still so much uncertainty. So I don't want to kind of convey that, oh, everything's like hunky dory, you know, everything's great. There is still a lot of uncertainty. But still, when you hear people like Dr. Fauci, you know, speaking and delivering his remarks or, or whoever, there is a scientific basis upon which we're understanding these experiences that is, that's, to me, a little bit comforting. How do
0: you think Dr. Fauci's doing?
1: I hope he's doing well because I think he's a <laughs> I think he's a legend. I have to tell you, my favorite epidemiological related or public health book is On the And the Band Played On, which is by Randy Schultz and it talks about the beginning of the HIV epidemic. And it's a really powerful book, but Dr. Fauci was a, a key player. Um, was willing to talk to AIDS patients when other people weren't, was willing to engage members of the activist community and listen to their concerns when others weren't and were discrediting them. So I think he's a true national gem. And um I hope he's doing really well. I hope he's getting enough sleep. I hear he runs a lot every day, which is amazing. So
2: yeah, he he seems to be like a force of nature that he says he he wakes up super early at four and he's still running, you know, know. his organization and then he gets things done and then he goes to briefings and then he says he stays up until like midnight, you know, dealing with other things to prepare. And it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. We wish, we hope he stays well as (laughs) just like (laughs) everyone else, I think.
0: Right. (laughs) So in, in kind of a historical context to get mathematical or, or whatever, I mean, this is, this has got to be kind of an expectation at this point, right? I mean, we're seeing this over and over and over throughout history. And even recently, it's just, I mean, this probably isn't the last one, right?
1: Oh, I don't think so at all. I don't want to, I don't want to diminish kind of the impact that this is happening, this is having, but part of me, the, the most cynical part of me thinks that this is preparation for the next one. Kind of. Um, that's what worries me. Um, I think that, you know, I don't understand necessarily how disease or like how these infections originate, how they pass from the bat to the human, you know, I don't understand how they evolve first for, for a bat to acquire something and then how it passes through. And we've heard stories that, you know, I think that they're culprits like wildlife trafficking and things of that nature. And to the extent that, that we are living in such a global world where these boundaries are, artificial, you know, to say that because people are traveling so much and our geographic boundaries and our state boundaries are becoming more and more artificial, not artificial, but permeable, I guess you will. There's just so much travel that's happening across the world and so much exchange of goods and services and things of that nature, that the likelihood that things will reach global proportions for everything, you know, whether it's, on demand car service like Uber to things like infectious disease, things just have a global scale to them now. And this is just an example of that. And so I do think that this is a preparation um, for us that we need to be thinking about these things more seriously because we can't contra- contain them as easily in geographic regions. I shouldn't say we can't contain they won't be contained mm-hmm. in geographic regions. Like they did, were able to be in the past. Um,
0: I think that's a concern. So that's why this is the outlier, then, right? It's it's a lot more than the flu, but it's not killing everyone it touches. It's not like HIV/AIDS, right? When when untreated, everyone dies. Yeah, it's not the perfect killer,
1: right? It's not, and that's why I say it. it's like we're somewhat. I don't want to say we're lucky, but like that's why I'm saying this is like a wake up call, like. Things are serious. We need to be thinking about pandemics. We need to be thinking about we need to be thinking about Public health and travel we need to acknowledge permeable borders right that do that, you know, viruses don't, you know, need to request visas Right, like we need to think of be thinking about those things. We need to be thinking about um, Our health systems and our infrastructure. I think right now this has been a huge eye-opener into the US healthcare system and how it's organized and how it's able when a catastrophe hits like this to care for the people who get sick and um it's also been an eye opener about Especially in the United States, about underlying conditions that have been have existed for a long time, and I'm speaking very specifically about structural inequalities. And if you think about like Chicago's death rates and the disproportionate number of COVID deaths that are coming in the African American communities, I mean, we've known racial disparities in health have existed for some time, Um, and now people, you know, in the public health community, we've been talking about it at nauseam forever. And I think this is really shining a light for. The rest of society to get on board and say, "What are we doing about this? This is these are you know really significant impacts."
2: Yeah. So this is this is the wake up call. This is the the warm up, perhaps. And so you you took to the internet and started you know creating these modules to educate people and and which I think is wonderful, right? To to say let's talk about this more. And you know, like you said, this isn't you aren't the the person you know creating the vaccine, but you're someone who who is not, your time is needs to be still productive and useful. And I think this is really a testament to like, you know, you're doing this because you care, right? And because you want people to be educated and you want them to get interested in this. Because I'm i with you on this. Like I was a little, I was a little bit ignorant to this as well. I mean, I had never traveled to Asia until, until last year. And I remember looking at my mom on the plane when they brought out, you know, these scanners before we got off and I was like, what is going on? This is so strange. And then, you know, I realized this is actually helping people, (laughs) you know, we should, this is a simple thing to add to the process of travel to make sure, you know, your people coming in aren't feverish. And if they are that, you know, they have to be quarantined for however long. So, you know, yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, easy things that we can do. I mean, just the whole washing your hands. I mean, Great. Like, if, if, you know, good things are coming of this good habits are starting. And I, I really think that, you know, people like in your in your shoes with your knowledge and being able to, you know, sift through some of the stuff that maybe is not helpful and, and pull out the, what is it is is providing a service to people.
1: Well, I have to say that the videos online, um, it, my intent was actually never to make them public. My intent was. Twofold. I thought that as schools were shutting down, I thought this might be scary for my nieces and nephews because I remember that the uncertainty about AIDS was very frightening to me growing up in the early 80s. And I thought that it would just be a break for my brothers because I knew that they were like had to do some homeschooling. I didn't know what was going on. And I was like, OK, this is something that could like occupy their time and give my like brothers a break for a bit. <laughs> so it really started out as just for my family. And as I was putting them together, I thought to myself, you know, I bet my colleagues at work might enjoy this too, like, or might appreciate this too. Because as I was putting it together, and you guys have seen the videos, it's not like they're for grade schoolers, right? It gets really complicated really quickly. So I thought, well, maybe my colleagues won't think it's like too base for them. And just the reaction from my family and from my colleagues was so positive that I was like, you know, I should just share this information. It's like, I have a video recording device. I have a computer. That's all you need these days. I don't have an editor. If I you know, were to do it again, that would be a great thing to have. Because <laughs> hearing your voice and your stutters and your uhs and your you knows <laughs> um, can be frustrating. But at the same time, that's where it came from. And so you know i just hope that they're useful and it's again just the goal really for them was not to make epidemiologists out of them but just make them able to read the news read the data with at least a with a critical eye and i think that i've always believed that that's what's most important um so so
0: it's a fair it's a fair thing though right i mean they're not our educational paths diverged after undergrad i was an economics major as well in in undergrad right? You went to Chicago, I went to Emory. And, and after that, like, we don't, we don't have anything in common really. Right. <laughs> but, but there was, there was, you know, nuggets of simplicity that even I could understand, which was awesome. Right. And, but there was a lot of statistical stuff, you know, how to measure risk, how to, you know, what does it look like, the herd, all of these things. Right. So let's apply some of that to some of what, what is actually in the news. Yeah, You know, you started talking about data coming out of China, out of Wuhan and, and death rates, and you started, you know, mutations, what happens with those, you know, how to risk mitigation and all of that stuff. What are you reading and, and what reactions do you have to, to the statistics and to that world that's being tossed
1: around these days? The statistics are getting smarter. Um I'm I'm pausing because I don't know. I don't want to start out with my criticism. I want to start out by saying what's good. Let's
0: just go there. Let's just start (laughs) with your criticism.
1: So my criticism is that there's very limited information we can do with counts, which does not have a denominator. So, and what I mean by that is if I know the number of people are infected in a community, that's interesting, but knowing the size of the community is more helpful because then I can understand the proportion of those in a community that are getting infected. Even more helpful would be then to understand the rate at which they're becoming infected, how many new infections are happening each day, each week, each month, whatever the data collection is, because then we can start seeing a leveling off or a trajectory, whether this epidemic is growing, whether it's the rate of which it's growing. And I think that we can make some really informed decisions. And I think at the beginning of the of this pandemic we were missing a lot of rate information and we're a lot of the denominator we just had counts we had this many people were dying this many people were test positive positive. and interesting as that may be and i think that that's informative and we talk about epidemiologic curves and they're based on that but we still were missing a denominator it was very hard to make sense of the scale of this and i actually think to some extent some organizations have addressed that and that we are seeing some, but the big topic right now that everyone is talking about, I think is testing, 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 testing. And I think the reason that that's so important is because we don't have a good sense because we know that there's people in a very simplistic world. You can think of it as three ways. There are people who are fourth. There are four people. There's people who don't get the disease or don't get infected. There's people that's one group. The second group is there's people who get infected, but do not develop symptoms. The third group is people who get infected and develop symptoms, some of, and some of whom will end up in the hospital. And the fourth group is people who get sick, develop symptoms and die. I think that our data now is focused on the people who develop symptoms, go to the hospital and or die my impression is that's the tip of the iceberg from all the data i've seen oh, go ahead so
0: so connect the dots here though cuz if if i'm thinking okay you want to analyze this that's great but ha- but as we connect the dots what's really important is that's going to impact the the cure and by the cure i mean if if you start to see something as a cluster or a real hot spot the sooner you see it then the faster you can you're going to have to impact people's lives to, to go on lockdown social distancing stay at home all that stuff and if you let it go then you've got this lag right
1: right well yes but more i think more importantly the what i think is so important about these asymptomatic people is that they're carriers and it's directly proportional to how many people are going to get sick and die because The more asymptomatic carriers they are out in society interacting with people, the more likely it is that people who for whatever reason have an underlying vulnerability to develop symptoms and perhaps die from the infection will get the infection, right? That's what social distancing is all about. It's like that. And that's why everyone is now in DC, at least everyone is wearing masks. And I think it's a really great thing because everyone's treating themselves as if they could spread the disease. disease, And I think that that's important because even though you don't have symptoms, you might be able to spread the disease. And if you sneeze, if you breathe, if you're too close to another person who has an underlying vulnerability, then that increases their risk of Of developing the disease and then kind of suffering from it. And we don't know right now how many asymptomatic carriers there are out there.
0: I mean, we don't know what percentage we don't, I mean, there's
1: right. Exactly.
0: There's nothing, right?
1: There's nothing. We've seen some data from Germany, but I haven't seen it in a journal article. Um, I know that LA County has recently done a study to try to understand how many asymptomatic carriers they are um and the NIH is doing a study um, they will send blood tests to people and will do blood tests to understand whether you have the antibodies and to understand whether you've been infected and whether you're an asymptomatic carrier or not
2: yeah so so like i in an ideal world what would happen we would all get tested or have a blood test and find this out i mean what what is what is reasonable like what what could we do
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> I think mean, mean, I mean, I mean, that's totally reasonable. Yeah, everyone should everyone- just get
2: some blood work and find out.
0: So doesn't it depend? I mean, so what if 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 you take this to the axioms to the extremes, what if you said, okay, 0.05% of the people are asymptomatic?
1: 0.05% of the
0: population. 0.05%, right? Or versus yeah. 80%. Right. Everyone's got it and nobody knows because there's no testing. Yeah. Right. I mean, those are huge two hugely divergent. Yeah situations and we don't really know what it is but i'm going to go back to your optimism earlier it's not killing as many people as you would expect if this were something that we didn't have any handle on right right it's
1: killing a lot of people um more than the flu does and things of that nature so i do think that there's co- there's reason for concern i don't think we're living in like this world where it could be 0.5% to 80% from the research that I've seen, I'm thinking it's like, I will, I will be 100% frank. My information... There's very little information out there. One of the best things to recently come out was in New York City, Columbia University published a paper. They tested all women who were coming in for a delivery. During a certain time, like recently, like a two-week time frame or something like that, they tested every single one of them that were that was coming in. You you, you got to use what you got. We, we should use that across the the nation, right? <laughs> yeah, right, and so well, right. So that's what they did. It's basically they found around fifteen percent of the women who are coming in tested positive, and of those, I think are, and then two percent tested positive and had symptoms. So I'm thinking in cities, if we assume, let's say that. Women who are going into delivery, they were pregnant. Maybe they protected themselves a little bit more. It might also be restricted to women who are delivering Columbia at Columbia. All those limitations aside, I think we're thinking about something on the scale of like 15 to 25, 30 percent of people, of adults probably right now who who are positive in cities like New York and D.C. That's a starting point. So when
0: you look at, you know, how this spreads mathematically, if that's the percentage, is that a big percentage to you or a small percentage to you?
1: That's a big percentage to me.
0: Huge, right? Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, it's pretty big. And so you can take it at two ways. You can say to the point that kind of like what you said, that not everyone who gets it is dying from it. And so that's a positive um, that we, a lot of people develop symptoms. Some get sick. That's not great. Even to get sick and not die necessarily isn't a great outcome because the illness is pretty severe. And if you get it severely, it's... um, I have a friend who has it pretty bad. And it's not a pretty... It's not anything that you'd want to give. You know, it's not... You don't want to get it, right? (laughs) Um, But at the same time, it also kind of tells me why efforts like social distancing and whatnot are so important. Because if so many people have it any random encounter could be very bad for that person. Yeah. Right? Like your chance of encountering someone in random day-to-day life who's positive when one in five adults are potentially positive, your chance of encountering them are just greater.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think about, it's not about me, right? I think about, I was chatting with my grandmother yesterday. She's at a retirement home. Yeah. And, and she's like, there's talks of, of people not being able to come inside the building for a year. And she goes, well. At least I like to read books,
1: (laughs) you know. That's something that I, my own bias, as I I study a lot of work on post nine eleven veterans and kids, and I don't, as much as I should, I don't think about the elderly and like the geriatric community. What we're seeing is that the effects can be gravest for these individuals, and I think we really need to think about these, the things that protect them physically from. Covid infection, the loneliness that results from it, like the isolation, all these things is has really hit me and struck me as hard. Um, like you, you know, you talk to your grandmother, my mother. Um, I talk to her twice a day, usually if not more, and text her throughout the day. I don't know. I, I just think that any our our parents and our grandparents should not be spending significant chunks of the last of their time alone. And that's why, you know, I don't know, sticking with them as they learn how to zoom or how to FaceTime, <laughs> as they learn like how to work the video on it is really important because they need that interaction. They need, because they don't have that touch, which is important. And I do think that they, that we need to keep them engaged and have our eye on that. And I hope again, as we're as we're learning lessons from this, I hope this is a lesson in how to continue to be, engaged with our elderly neighbors and family members and how to continually involve them in, in our lives and the importance that they play.
0: So your most recent publication through, through the Woodrow Foundation was about veterans and the effects of COVID-19. And so the, the follow-up to that is sort of how do communities behave in times like this and, yeah. uh, you know, the veteran is is a subset, it's a subset of the population, but we all kind of need the, these things that we're going without right now.
1: Right. So our, when we, so we published a paper on April 3rd, and so we acknowledged that there are these physical effects and that's the paramount importance is the infection and the illness that results. We started to look at the second order effects, especially as the economy started shutting down and we started to see elevated um, unemployment numbers. So our paper was published right before the the March unemployment um, uh, unemployment numbers came out. So we looked at kind of who is likely to be laid off, which industries are likely to lay off people, where are those industries located. Um, the cities in which they're located. So 14% of veteran workers are employed in industries that are likely to experience significant layoffs. 500,000 veterans live in cities in the United States that are likely to experience significant economic impacts as a result of COVID. Um, and one of them is in Orlando, just to give you a sense of where those are Las Vegas, 150,000 veterans, Orlando, around 150,000 veterans. Like these are the areas that we're really concerned about as experiencing a significant economic shock. So then we thought, well, you know, how do veterans and, but again, this, we, our lens was veterans, but a lot of what we learned can be applied to all Americans. So we said, well, how long will these, will this unemployment last? And based on the last recession we experienced, we expect six months for 50% of people who get, who are laid off, that their unemployment will last six months. So we looked at, well, how much do they have in their, in the bank? to support them during the six-month time period. And the median amount that people have in their savings and check-ins account is around $3,000. So in Las Vegas, $3,000 buys you essentially two months. So what are you doing there the rest of that time? And, you know, I keep telling people, I, I think that what my lesson from individuals is, is how you experience these, this time of unemployment, this time of, um, social isolation. The decisions you make today are going to determine how long this stays with you. The decisions you make about visiting a friend will determine whether you increase your likelihood of getting infected and ending up in the hospital. The decision about what you decide to put on your credit card and you know how much you decide to put it will last within you. Your decision to go get a payday loan will you know can carry on with you for the rest of your life so these are the things that we're concerned about is these kind of ripple effects you know so that's one of our lenses is kind of how will people weather the storm uh, from a veteran perspective because I know you're interested in them in this one of the things we're also really concerned about is new veterans so we have veterans who will lose their jobs and look be looking for employment but each year we have around two hundred fifty thousand. Men and women in the Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force, and Coast Guard that leave service. 250,000 who enter essentially the work, many of whom enter the workforce, right? They're also going to be looking for jobs. And history suggests that those are the people who are going to have the hard- hardest time finding jobs and being reemployed during this time. Um, so, real concern about this group as well. And then When you think about the older veterans, especially the social isolation, the loneliness that are necessary from a public health perspective, but that compounded with unemployment, compounded with past trauma and PTSD, compounded with anxiety about becoming infected and whatnot. It's, we really need to intervene immediately to stave off any adverse consequences that could result from all of this. some of which is really necessary to prevent the infection, but we really have to be thinking about these second order effects, if you will.
0: So, so what does that look like? What should we be doing?
1: So there's different solutions. I think that you know, my organization has um, an announcement for their, you know, they have a rapid COVID-19 grant cycle. So they're taking applications for organizations that want to serve veterans. So, but, but I
0: mean, what should the veterans actually be doing? The guys, the guys out there, I mean, you, you, you bring this up, right? It's, it's like, don't pull out your credit card and do retail therapy. You don't need a, a $10,000 garage gym. If, if you're going to, you're going to pay 20% a month on it, you don't, you know, needs versus wants. I mean, we're kind of in that era a little bit. I mean, the, the fundamentals of someone out there who's having a difficult time and they're, they're isolated and maybe they got laid off. And yeah. they're not able to go to link up with their buddies at wherever because, you know, the club on Friday night in Vegas is closed, by the way. Right. And and so what, what at the most basic level, how do they how do they do right?
1: So I think that they have to look for um, emergency financial assistance from organizations that provide it. They need to think about their spending. And when things become overwhelming. I think they need to reach out for help. And whether that's calling a local crisis line, whether that's calling the VA, whether that's calling an organization like Cohen Veterans Network, all of these organizations do provide telehealth services. They're all there. They're all willing to talk to people. So it assumes that they have access to the internet and um, can get treatment that way. But I think that when it becomes over overwhelming reaching out, that, We've actually heard anecdotally that telehealth and people receiving some therapy via telehealth, people really respond well to it, that they really like actually getting care and in the comfort of their own home. So I think that's one idea. The other thing is I I really am increasingly convinced that service is a huge component. I don't know what that looks like. For every person, it's going to look very different. Um, I have seen examples of letter-writing campaigns. So these are things people can do in their homes. I have friends who are sewing face masks for individuals. Even if you only sew five, you know, the act of doing something and providing service, we are increasingly learning that that helps people go through these times to feel that they're actually contributing. And I think it may even be stronger among veterans who live their lives and have devoted so much of their their effort to a cause greater than themselves. So to be able to continue that notion of service to others can be really helpful. And I'm not saying everyone needs to go out and start you know, working at a food bank or whatnot, but figure out what you can do in your community. And I honestly think that that's what... I think that even doing these videos that I did, as stupid as they were, and as kind of hammy as they are, really helped me get through some of my anxiety about about COVID-19 and things of that nature. So I just think that those are some really practical things I think people can do.
2: I love that so much. I think that's what I was thinking of. Um, You know, you put that out there and it's been so helpful to people, but it makes a lot of sense that you can say, that was really helpful to me. And, you know, just letting people be able to connect and feel like they're contributing it, it really lets you feel like you're not alone and that you're still part of this community i mean think look at all these like you know i have a friend i mean she's a 20 something um friend of mine and she's sewing masks and then you have you know grandmothers sewing masks and it's you know it, it's all these people doing these things and they're like they're they're feeling connected as as a result so i think that's such a great thing and we we talk about this a lot at, um, at GoRock and, and, and even on this podcast. Um,
0: I mean, yeah, it's like Christmas, it's better to give than receive, right? I mean, these, these absolutes, they're, yeah, they're true in times of crises, maybe even more than ever.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, there's a, there's some really good research to suggest that There is value there. And I've seen really interesting things, and people are doing whatever they can. And, you know, whatever you can is great. Like, I think that's, I don't think we need to be judging on what people are doing and comparing each other. But if this is what you can do at this time, then that's great. And, you know what? It occupies a lot of time and time that you would be spending, you know, watching Netflix or having a drink if you're at a sewing machine. Yeah, having a drink maybe still, but like I mean, <laughs> it adds a different thing. Up.
0: I mean, my grandmother used to crochet in front of the, the boob tube, watching Jeopardy, and and all this stuff. I mean, you know, stay busy, right? You know, stay right? busy.
1: But I, it's not just sewing, right? Like these letter writing campaigns, and even just like gosh, checking in on a neighbor or something. Or I've really tried to reach out to people like in my network who might be alone, regardless of age, you know, who just might be weathering the storm a little bit more alone. Um, And I think that that's been, I I don't know whether that helps them or not, but we seem to text for a long time or be on the phone for a long time.
0: Yeah, so, you know, the importance of, of community, how do we balance it? Because right now, we're kind of living in this alternate universe where, I mean, shoot, we're catching up. It's been what a decade, maybe, maybe yeah. about that. Like, it's good to see you, man. You know, uh, and and then you've got neighbors out and about, and you talk about. I mean, I know this is this is a huge part of your research in the military space. I mean, what is the importance of community in terms of the solution to to isolation and to just feelings of fulfillment that that maybe are lacking in some ways right now with with imposed isolation?
1: Yeah, it's very tough in today's day and age with, as you said, imposed isolation to think about what does community mean? I've seen such a strengthening of community. I've seen so many people come together in these times. I actually think what we need to do is sustain our spirit of community. I actually think that if anything, COVID has at a certain level brought There was so much like separating people. I'm not thinking of the right word, the opposite of unity. I was going to say disunity, but I don't think that that's it. There's so much division. That's it.
0: Divisiveness.
1: Right. And I think that in some ways this brought us all together and we're helping out our neighbors regardless of their political beliefs or whatnot. And everyone is still political and has their opinion for sure. But I think that there's a threat of goodwill. There's a sea of goodwill that's happening. So a part of me thinks that the most important thing right now is to sustain it. And so what worries me, though, I have to say, I study, as you know, my big focus is suicide. I spend my life, um, and as a researcher, we're just taught to always look for holes. So I want to be optimistic, but I'm going to tell you what worries me. So what worries me is that when this is over, when social distancing is over, when people go outside, I think that they're, we're weathering the storm together as a group. What worries me is when everyone starts going outside and everyone is embracing the spirit of collectiveness that there's still some people who will be alone and that during this time the loneliness may not hurt as much because everyone is alone and they feel a commonality with their neighbors but then When birthday parties start happening, when dinner parties start happening, they'll still be the ones who are uninvited and unincluded not included. And I think that this is a real wake-up call for all of us to think about those individuals and how we can continue to ensure that we're reaching out and being inclusive when we can, um, so that we can make sure that spring comes again for everyone, if you will. That's not scientifically based necessarily, but that's... That's, that's my concern. And that's what I'm going to try to do at least going forward.
0: So it's almost like when social distancing ends for a a subset, that's when the real social distancing starts. That's your fear.
1: I mean, that's my fear is that it's, it's a, it's currently a communal experience and when it ends, it can become a very individual one. I also am concerned about that for, um, When people, I think that people are being laid off right now, collectively in a mass, there's mass layoffs happening. So being unemployed right now, you're just one of a group and everyone's getting unemployment. So you just feel like common with people, but things are going to be different when people start getting rehired, because I think that that will happen very differently for different individuals. And some people won't be rehired as soon as others. And we have to be concerned about the people who are not being rehired as quickly.
0: There's not the stigma right now.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: everybody's in it. Misery loves company. And, you know, that's just where a lot of people are. It's like, well, everyone's getting laid off, you know, and GORUCK has had to, I mean, we've had to cancel hundreds and hundreds of events. We've had to do some furloughs and there's a little bit of wait and see for, for, I don't know a business that hasn't been impacted.
2: Right. And not to mention there's going to be People and you know that that are immunocompromised or the elderly that aren't going to be able to go out as quickly as others, right? And yeah. like you're saying, there it is going to be a situation where everyone's going to be like, okay, well, let's get back to normal and go go on with our lives and get busy again, and other people are going to be lagging behind. And I I think that's a really great point to to bring up because like we are enjoying this sort of the silver linings of, you know, looking out for your neighbor. I mean, I I go for a run around our neighborhood or a ruck and I see, I see actually people that I've never seen before. You know, I never even knew where they, that they lived here. And and I see them in their home spaces. I see them working out in their garages and, you know, kids playing in their front yards. And it, it feels almost like we've gone back in time, you know, to a time when people didn't really get super busy. They just went to work and hung out in their home and gathered and you know, lawn chairs and had a drink together. And so there's something kind of quaint and really simple, you know, just really touching about it. So I do hope, that, I think a lot of us hope that we will retain some of these, you know, these positive traits, you know, it, it's really stop- like we've, we've had a hard reset yeah, on a lot of our lives. I mean, cause it just starts to spiral where you're just, you're, you're never home. You're always busy. You can't fit anything in and you know, this has been a really kind of great kind of forced um, pause for people. And, and I think you're right to say, let's, let's take that and keep that and really look after the people that, you know, we, we never talked, spent the time or had the time to talk to before, but now we're friends and we can keep that up.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. So Rajiv, Dr. Ramshan, we've, we've talked a lot about the, the statistical analysis. We've, we've kind of taken the basics of epidemiology. We've talked a little bit about your, your worries or where you see some of the, the data going. I mean, what's your overall sense of, of where we are in this? And, you know, just to kind of wrap it up a little bit for, for the folks like me, where, where's this going to go? There's a little bit of prediction required here. You know, put it into context for us. This is which you already kind of have, right? This is not going to be the last one. There's going to be more. There, there's a curve that's, that, that could get a little flatter if we do some, some of the correct things. Testing needs to happen for, for a lot of different reasons. What, what are you really focused on in, in terms of analyzing
1: this as far as next steps? That's a great question. My focus right now actually is ensuring that people don't get tired of social distancing and don't lax. Don't, you know, relax their vigilance, if you will. And I think that's a real concern. And protecting our healthcare workers. I think that, that, you know, I worry about the strain that's been put on them, especially if they don't feel that they're protected. So that is my immediate kind of acute concern. My projected concern and where I see the data going is, is I want to understand how we can prevent or mitigate so i'm not even interested anymore in like looking at projecting how many people will become alone or how many people. you know i'm not like thinking about forecasting outcomes but i want to say how can we mitigate them what are the interventions that we can execute right now to ensure that we minimize loneliness that we minimize anxiety and i think what we've seen the pivoting of at least mental health care providers to telehealth services is one example of like a really great thing that's happened that everyone has gone to telehealth. We've seen really great pe- people have really liked experiencing it and things of that nature. So I think those two are, that's kind of my acute short term, long term and hoping that this experience will open up our eyes to three things, the importance of public health and the global community and ensuring that we're tracking things that are happening globally and realize that whatever is happening in China or wherever has impact on us. So I think that it opens our eyes to an international sphere. I also hope it'll open our eyes to the healthcare infrastructure that exists and how we've seen from this experience that it's somewhat precarious and it becomes strained really quickly. And then I hope that we also think about the inequalities and the inequities in healthcare that are most pronounced in Chicago and cities like that. But I think that this is something that I've been concerned about for a long time that many public health researchers have been concerned about for a long time. And I think that this demonstrates it. And addressing that requires systematic change. It doesn't it's not an intervention. We can't, you know, throw a program. We have to think through how our communities and systems are organized that allow people to have underlying medical conditions at disproportionate rates. Why, what's the drivers of those things? And there are, very, there are lots of systemic, systemic reasons for that. And I'm hoping that this will enable us not only to understand what those are, because I think we know what a lot of those are, but to actually intervene and to actually change the systems so that we don't see these inequities down the road. That's my hope for the long-term.
0: That's my hope too. Sign me <laughs> off.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's a, that's a very like comp- comprehensive list. And I agree with you a hundred percent, but it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot.
1: <laughs> it is a lot, but you know, I think that, uh,
2: but you got to start somewhere.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was so interesting. Like i thought that a lot of our most challenging problems, we, we can't use band-aids, Right we can't use a Band-Aid approach to fix some of our most challenging problems because Band-Aids rip or they get, you know, they wash off. And so if we really want to address something um, and really tackle it at its core, we need to think about the systems and we need to be in for some, for changes that might be uncomfortable or disruptive. But I think that as your company, your company is a disruptor. And I think that as other companies have emerged that have disrupted uh, I think this is the time for disruption, right? Like we're used to it. We're ready for it. We're experiencing it. Let's do it.
0: I mean, in some ways, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? I mean, it's, it's an opportunity for, for the better. I mean, you know, you take your fears that this is a, a warm warm-up. I, I agree with you. I mean, just we think we're so special, like we've got everything solved. I mean, until the next one, it's not the same strain. Can you imagine if this were killing kids?
1: It'd be so horrific. I, just I mean, cannot. I just got uh,
0: I, like the 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 wave of emotions that went over me. It was it was horrific. So, you know, I just start to think that you're you're right. This needs to be an inspiration to to greater action. And you know, I mean, there's lots of ways that we can do that. I know that you're you're fighting the good fight. We're gonna fight the good fight in in our ways. And we we've seen so many people out there. Who just want to help. And now is the time to, to help inspire a lot of them to do that. And another thing though, the, the balance in all of this that you've, you talk a lot about, it's also on your, on your site. And we were talking about it just before we, we started recording was enjoy life, <laughs> strike the mm-hmm. right balance, take this seriously. But, but what does that mean to you amidst all of this? Enjoy life. It's big for you.
1: Oh my god! I mean, I don't. I don't want to say that I've like loved my life since, but I've kept myself busy. Um, so I love theater. It's amazing to see how the professional theater community. You know, they all just. If you're an actor, you want to act, right? If you like, what? How can you act on stage? So it's so amazing to see how the theater community has use social media and things of that to promote their craft and to, so I've been really following that and enjoying that. Um, I have to tell you, I wrote, um, like around a year ago, I was inspired for whatever reason. I wrote a play, and my, there's only three characters in it, but three of my closest friends who kind of, I'm not afraid to share my emotions with, I guess, or to like let, put myself out on the table. We've been doing Zoom readings of the play. So like, we'll do a scene a night. And so we sit there and they read it on like Zoom. And like, I share my screen and they read it. And so that's been really good to hear my words, like come to, because everyone has a time, right? Um, I'm designing a t-shirt with my friend. We, we, I was in a band in the fifth grade with my, like, and I played the drums, which were upside down garbage cans. And you know, my brother, Nick, I would, I remember Nick would always have party. I was in fifth, the fifth grade. He was in high school and he would have parties at our house. And I would come up to him and say, Nick, <laughs> shapes and sizes. That was the name of our band, shapes and sizes. I'm like, shapes and sizes can play in your, in your at your party, at your, your cool high school party. <laughs> we never did. But we wrote our own songs. And so anyway, I've I designed a t-shirt um, with my partner. We designed a t-shirt and we're going to... Print a bunch of them for shapes and sizes because the other band member is now a physician in New York City in the New York City public hospitals, and we're gonna kind of do a fundraiser to raise money for New York City um, health and hospitals to help support them during this time. And so, so I've been just trying to do whatever. I mean, like, listen, like doing my epidemiology, graphic design, writing a play, like whatever you can do, like. I don't know. That's what I do for fun. Oh, and I made homemade cheese that's two days ago. So I, I saw those.
2: I love Cheese its Jason, Jason thinks of the devil's work, but I love them and they looked great. Did they taste good? <laughs>
1: <laughs> they weren't as good as the real thing.
0: In the army, you got MREs, right? And there's yeah. there's two things you get. You either get cheese uh, cheese spread or you get peanut butter, right? I never... Ever, I, I I would eat it from time to time. I never wanted the fake cheese. I'm not a fake cheese guy. You guys like fake cheese? It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I'm not judging. I just don't like that. I want my peanut butter. Peanut butter is always real.
1: When you make homemade cheeses, you use real cheddar. So there's no fake cheese <laughs> in homemade cheese. I will say, well, for the one that I made at least. Yeah. So
0: that's <laughs> that's very fair, Rajib. And uh, well. Thank you so much for coming on to Glorious Professionals. It's been awesome chatting with you. We're grateful for you spending a little bit of time with us. And I know it's been informative for for everyone out there. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Give your kids big hugs.
2: Will do. Thank you so much.
0: So it's just you and me now. Yeah. Dr. Ramshan has left the the audio building. What do you think? I'm just...
2: I mean, he's just like I remember him. Like just so smart and just, just brilliant on, on, you know, all these big, big issues, but he's just someone that you feel comfortable around and you can talk to about anything. And he's, you know, very open and, and just like, he cares deeply about what he does. I mean, I, I, it's so great to find people who have discovered what they're, what they're good at and what they're passionate about, and then see them just take it. I mean, I hadn't, you know, talked to him in a while since, you know, I'd been in DC and, I, you know, looking back over all the work that he's done and his resume and all the the articles I pu- he's published, I was like, whoa, what have I done with my life? You know, it's just like, it's really profound. Like a lot of work has been done and it's really great to to know people like him are out there.
0: Yeah, you know, the the part that really I found interesting because I we've known him for a long time, but you don't always, sometimes on a podcast, you get to know someone a little bit differently. And when he started talking about, you know, as an openly gay man, always fearing a virus, I'm like, man, I just, that's not how I grew up. And so sometimes you've got people like Rajiv in these spots that are really, I mean, He's got a really, really big brain resume, and he's earned it. And you've got these people who are willing to dedicate their lives for the betterment of others. And he's in the right spot doing the right thing with his life. I just I never thought about connecting those two dots. And those are the kinds of things that can make him even better at what he's done.
2: Absolutely. I mean, just putting it in perspective of we actually know a lot about the coronavirus family, and that's an optimistic thing to have. That's actually, you know, a quiver in our, you know, an arrow in our quiver um, to know some things like that. But, you know, he's talking about HIV AIDS and how it went on for so many years for not even understanding what it was about, you know, and and it was preventable, and and now it's there, there's still a lot of work to be done in, in those areas, but it's but it's come a long way, and I think there was a lot of uh, other hurdles to go through. So, you know, what we're facing now, I, I actually really liked how he said this is kind of the warm up, you know, like, and I've heard that before. I actually I actually think I read that, you know, someone like Fauci or something said said that where, you know, it's it could get a lot worse from here. Like we've got to use this information that we have and kind of, it's like, wow. It's it's like here in Florida, we have a hurricane come through and you, it doesn't hit, hit your spot. And you're kind of like, Ooh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go prepare a little bit better this next time, you know? Well,
0: and, and then there's the strategic level of preparation, which is things like building codes and Hey, you know, windows are level five proof and all of that stuff. Right. Well,
2: and he's he's talking about that about the infrastructure, you know, like hey, a wake up call for the need for you know public health for hospital infrastructure, or you know, looking at inequalities in our healthcare system. Like those are big bucket items that you know maybe sometimes it's like, oh, we want to think about these things before that. It's like, nope, these kind of rise to the top really quickly, and we see why that matters because it, you know, this shut. Shut everything down really fast, and I don't think anybody could have predicted how fast that could happen on a global scale.
0: And can you imagine, just to to really take this up a notch? Can you imagine if this would have been, or if this were, I should say, because it's not over, if this were something as unknown as AIDS that was as infectious as COVID nineteen, that was killing everybody that got it, like AIDS did. I mean. I'm not I'm not out to promote fear. I'm out to promote preparation and just some perspective to say, look, this this probably is a train up and part of that train up is in our own mental preparation for how we deal with this. And so we'll have Rajiv back on at, at a later date to talk exclusively about the the veteran side of of the house, which is where he spent his entire career. And the, the community side, the the fitness side, the mental wellness side, the physical wellness side, and and how we respond to what is going on now, it's, we're, we're training. We're training for whatever's going to come out of this.
2: I, I really liked how he said, take what we've learned about, you know, looking really closely at veterans and their behavior and apply that to anybody. Because it really, you know, that just shows you like, you know, you've got The military and its ability to, you know, test and, and get, you know, have a lot of control of a huge control group and apply that to our populace. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of answers that can be found there. And there's a lot of, you know, what's good for a veteran is probably good for anybody, (laughs) you know, in terms of wellness and community and, you know, trying to prevent social isolation.
0: Yeah. Two words, homo sapien. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we're all pretty much united like that. So anyway, this was a, this was a departure from some of our previous guests. And this is certainly what you can expect moving forward. The, the roots that we have with the glorious amateurs and, and the quiet professionals, it's, it's not always just about the guy with the gun on the high ground, on the rooftop. It takes all different kinds in order to, to achieve mission success. And there's a lot of just experts out there who are, who are serving oftentimes thanklessly. They're, they're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And they, and they believe in, in our cause and in, in our way forward. And Rajiv is very much one of those, one of those people. He's a, he's a dear friend of ours. We're, we're grateful to know him and it was an honor to have him on the, on the podcast. And, and we really thank you for, for listening.
2: Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you, Rajiv, and and to all the essential workers out there and to everyone, uh, you know, hang in there. We're, we're going to get through this together and we're going to prepare better for the next time.